Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning, Crosspoint brothers and sisters, friends that are joining us from near and far. Our text this morning is Psalm 77, so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up your copy of God's Word to this beautiful psalm, Psalm 77, which I think is a kind of manual for dealing with despair. Despair is is one of those poignant words. I think all of us are, to one degree or another, acquainted with despair. Certainly, we've felt it in the past. If we're not dealing with it now, we most certainly will deal with it in the future. And I think in these times of isolation and really international pandemic, we are more prone than normal to despair. And so this passage this morning, I think, is, is especially applicable to us where we are as a culture, as a people, as a church. Despair is something that all of us face. I know This is personal for me. I know I am prone to despair. And so I want us to engage this text. I want us to wrestle with it. And I want us to see these beautiful truths out of God's word. This psalm is 20 verses. And I think it really breaks down into two parts. The first nine verses are a kind of diagnosis of despair. So we're going to diagnose what despair is. And then the second part of the psalm, verses 10 through 20, are an instruction manual on how to deal with with despair. So let me pray, and then we're going to dive into this psalm together. Lord, thank you for this beautiful day. We know that the rain is falling, and we know that even in that you have purposes. And so we pray that you would protect all those that are listening from maybe any storms that might come through later this afternoon or evening. And we thank you for the rain. We, we know that you water the earth with it, and we pray that it would be a kind of symbol of your word this morning, that you would water our hearts with your word, that it would be like the rain that falls down from heaven that does not return void but accomplishes its purpose. Lord, use this psalm, use my words of explanation and exhortation to be means of watering the hearts and the minds of your people and drawing any unbelievers that might be listening to faith in Jesus. Lord, do a miracle and give dead hearts faith and encourage your saints, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read the first nine verses of Psalm 77, and this is a diagnosis of despair. The psalmist writes, and this is written by Asaph, the worship leader for the nation of Israel in in much of the Old Testament, either by him or one of his sons who were given this task of leading Israel in song. He writes in the first nine verses, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever 
and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion, Selah? Now, what's the setting of the psalm? We, we're really not sure what the specific instance was in the psalmist's life or in the nation of Israel. It's kind of broad and general and ambiguous. And I think it's that way intentionally by God as he's inspiring the, the writing of this song so that it would have broad application in the Christian life. Let's ask ourselves the question, what brings on despair? We're all prone to it. We all feel it on one level or another at various times in our life. I think despair is a kind of combination of things both internal and external. It's, it's not only caused by sometimes sin within us, but also sin and the brokenness around us. It's, it's caused by sometimes the insecurity of our own frail lives and the uncertainty of the world around us and the, the unknown future. And then, of course, all of us are, are given by God in our natural sort of estate differing levels of emotional strength and hardiness. Regardless of where we may fall on that spectrum or regardless of what situation we may be in this particular moment, all of us are prone to despair. And as I have, as I have had conversations with people in the church over the last few weeks as we've been in this time of isolation and quarantine, I think... I think clearly many of us are more prone than normal to despair. So let's diagnose despair according to this text. The first thing that I want to see a kind of diagnosis of despair is that Christians, even strong ones, deal with despair. Look at the first two verses. The psalmist starts out by crying aloud to God. In verse 2 he says, In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. So there's no doubt here that the first instinct of the psalmist is to go to God. There's no doubt that this psalmist was a believer. Why do I make this obvious point here right off the bat? Because I think sometimes we are prone to buy into this faulty notion, this, this sort of spiritual trick that mature Christians or people that are strong in their faith are somehow resistant to despair. Friends, that is just not true. All of us, even strong Christians, at varying times in our lives, deal with despair. The second diagnosis about, about despair that I want us to see is that despair is draining. It saps us of our strength. Look, look again at, at verse 2 and, and 3 and 4. He says there in the second half of verse 2 that he stretched out his hand without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Then in verse 3, I remember God, I moan when I meditate. My spirit faints. And in verse 4, he says, I can't even keep my, he, my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. Despair strangely saps us of our energy, but it actually requires a lot of energy to do. Despairing is hard work. It's taxing. That's what the psalmist is saying here. It's wearing him out. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on the psalm, says about this, these little few verses here, and I love this. He says, Many a daughter of despondency has pushed aside the cup of gladness, and many a son of sorrow has hugged his chains. Just, just 
just picture the imagery that Spurgeon is giving us there, that it takes energy in our despair to push off comfort. And that's what the psalmist is saying, that I refuse to be comforted. And he says that the son of sorrow hugs his chains, sometimes with a death grip, and that takes energy. Despair is draining. Thirdly, despair turns us inward. And it leads to self-pity. Despair turns us in on ourselves. And it leads us to self-pity and a loss of perspective. I know this to be true in my own life. Look at verses 5, 6, and 7 again. The psalmist says, When I consider, I consider the days of old, the years long ago, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And I don't want to make too much of this, but it seems to be, as we'll see the difference here at the second half of this psalm, that here, the psalmist, rather than getting outside of himself and going to God, he's going inward to himself. And then he says, then my spirit made a diligent search. And this is what he came up with when he looked inside himself. He, he asked the question, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? That's just a faulty conclusion. And that conclusion comes from looking inwardly, which drives the psalmist to self-pity. And we do that, do that as well. I, I think despair has the same effect like when we go to the carnival or the fair, we used to have this midwinter fair that came through my hometown, and there was always the, the house of the funny mirrors, and you go into the, the house, and there's all these distorted mirrors, and you look at yourself, and it makes you really, really tall and skinny, or really, really, you know, outsized, uh, wide. It, despair is like the funny mirror house at the carnival. You, you see yourself, but it's a distorted image of yourself. It's a distorted image of reality around you. We see ourselves and our circumstances wrongly. But more importantly than, than seeing ourselves wrongly, despair does a fourth thing. A fourth way that, that we want to diagnose despair is that even more importantly, despair distorts our understanding of God. That's what's so heinous about despair. Not only does it turn us in on ourselves, but it distorts our understanding of God. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Look, look at the questions that the psalmist asks. And, and it gives an indication of how he is wrongly perceiving God in this moment. They're honest questions. But they're questions that, that belie a distorted understanding of God in this moment of despair. He says in verse 8 and 9. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at, the, at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Well, when we are thinking rightly, of course we know that the answers to those questions are a resounding no. But all of us have been in situations where we wonder those things. And the psalmist here gives voice to those real human emotions, but they are distorted emotions. They're distorted understandings of God. So despair not only clouds our right view of ourself and our circumstances, but even, even worse, it distorts our understanding of God. Which leads me to the fifth thing I want to say, the fifth and final thing before we move on to dealing with despair. The fifth thing that I want to say in, in the way of diagnosing despair is that, friends, despair is real. But remember, despair lies. Despair is real, but despair lies. In a sense, I kind of want to, I want to sort of thread a needle here. In one sense, one of the reasons that I'm attracted to the Psalms 
is because they, they give voice to real human emotions and feelings and anxieties, even, even broken ones, even ones that are in, in, at times sinful. It gives voice to human experience. It doesn't validate that emotion as correct, but it just identifies it as being real. And, and, and I take great comfort in that, that God is not unacquainted with our human condition. In fact, Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, God the Son, became a man like us and was not unacquainted, Hebrew says, with our weaknesses. And so one of the beautiful things about the Psalms, many of the Psalms, is that they are songs of lament that give voice to the real human emotions and even the despair that we face. But friends, we must remember that despair, although real, lies. It lies. Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 44, he's, uh, he's, he's speaking to his disciples and he's speaking about the devil And he says that you are of your father, the devil, and he is the father of lies. The enemy wants to come and piggyback on the weakness of our hearts and minds in these moments of despair. And he wants to piggyback on them and use them against us. Remember when we were going through James, in James chapter 4, we find that our enemy is this unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world around us is broken, and we know that inside we have this fallen flesh. Even if we've been redeemed and renewed and recreated, we're still dealing with the residue of our old man. And then, so we're dealing with the world around us that is broken. We're dealing with the residue of our old man. And then the devil, this this third part of this unholy trinity, piggybacks on the world and the residue of sin that still exists in us and wants wants to use that to lie to us. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, that our adversary, the devil, prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. How does the enemy devour? He doesn't just literally jump out behind a rock as a lion and chase us. But he comes in the form of these, he piggybacks on the form of these despairing lies. And he discourages us. And he wants to shipwreck Christians. He's like a vulture that's looking for a wounded animal on the side of the road. And he stalks his prey by piggybacking on the emotion of despair. So that's a quick diagnosis of despair that we see in this psalm. Let's turn our attention now to what the psalmist turns his attention to is how he preached the gospel to himself and dealt with despair. Let's read verses 10 through 20, dealing with despair. There's a turn in verse 10. He turns, everything turns on verse 10. He says, let me read verse 10 through 20. Then I said, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? 
You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah, which means meditate on this, think on this. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Well, how are we to deal with despair? I think these 10 verses are a kind of manual. First, the first way that the psalmist instructs us to deal with despair is to recall the goodness of God in your life. Recall the goodness of God in your life. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. He says it again. I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder, verse 12, your work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. This word ponder can, can literally be uh, translated to read in kind of a, a, an undertone, to read to yourself, to talk to yourself. In other words, rehearse in your mind, speak under your breath about the goodness of God. And the picture I had as I was meditating on this word ponder is when you're trying to keep your mind on track, sometimes maybe if you're, if you're counting money or you're, you're counting numbers, and you sort of have to voice it under your breath to keep your mind on track. I I think that's what's in view here is you have to train your mind you have to make a decision to ponder the work of the Lord and consider and think back on your history about how God has been good to you friends to do this it takes intentionality we have to decide to think about and pause our lives for a moment to consider how good God has been to us in our past now think about, we know how to be intentional. We sit down and we plan out our schedules and our budgets and our business plans and even the shows that we want to watch. We schedule the shows that we want to watch. Now all these things can be important. Schedules, budgets, business plans, maybe not the shows we want to watch. But we know how to be intentional. But for some strange reason, and I think this is just spiritual warfare, when it comes to cultivating our spiritual health, we, even the most disciplined among us, are strangely undisciplined. What's going on with that, friends? There's a spiritual war going on to you being intentional and thinking about and recalling the goodness of God in your life. I've said it many times before, we all have gospel amnesia. Not only do we forget the gospel, but we forget the goodness of God in our lives. So here's an action step for us. Today, today, before the sun goes down on Sunday, April 19th, if you are dealing with despair, the psalmist is calling you, the word of God is calling you to spend time pondering, recalling, speaking to yourself about instances where God was good to you. And this can't just be something that you do for 30 seconds in your mind. Take out a pad and a paper and a pen and write out, carve out a half hour and sit down and think about and chronicle God's goodness to you. And if you're having trouble recalling God's goodness to you, 
And friends, think about, think about your sinfulness. Think about, think about how you have rebelled against God in your life if you're a believer. And then stand amazed at God's mercy that he would save a wretch like you and me. And ponder, meditate on God's goodness. Recall the goodness of God. The second way that we deal with despair that the, in, the psalmist instructs us is to know the character of God. Know it. Study it. Think about it. Be aware of it. Know what the Bible says about the character of God. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. He says, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. So he's made this transition. He's, he's getting outside of himself, and instead of studying this weakness and the frailty of his failing energy to not even be able to keep his eyes open, he's now cast his gaze on the character of God, and he is remembering the holiness, the glory, the steadfast love and promises of God. Again, friends, this takes discipline. We have to make a decision to actually read our Bibles and to be acquainted. This is how we know the character of God, through the written word of God, which gives us very great and precious promises by which we know the divine nature of God. Friends, this takes effort. This takes effort. And I think some of us in times like this are prone to have the theological category of the power of God But in times of despair, it's very easy to forget the compassion of God. Isn't that strange how we understand the power of God? We know that he's in charge, but we just conclude that his power, his sovereignty, somehow is not exercised towards us in a good way. I was just speaking on the phone this week with a brother, and he was discouraged at this point, and he was was understanding and still believing that God is all-powerful, but he was struggling to see the goodness of God. And so in one sense, he was, he was kind of knowing half of the character of God, the power of God, but he wasn't necessarily seeing in his despair the mercy of God, the mercy of God. Jonathan Edwards was a famous American theologian in the 1700s. I'm sure most of us are familiar with him on some level or another. Many of us just read his one sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, but he gets sort of a bad rap as if that's a, that's a wonderful sermon, it's all true, but sometimes that's all people know of him, and they have a kind of negative view of Edwards, but he wrote so much about heaven and about the glory and mercy of God. And in this sermon called The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Christ Jesus, in fact, it's probably my favorite sermon maybe in the history of the church outside of the sermons in the Bible, The admirable conjunction, in other words, the joining together of the diverse excellencies in Christ Jesus. Edwards talks about how Jesus, one of the proofs of Jesus' divinity, is how he is the joining together of things that seem to be on the opposite extreme. He says about Jesus that there meets in Jesus infinite highness and infinite condescension. He says, in Jesus there meets infinite justice and infinite grace. He says, in Christ there meets together infinite glory and lowest humility. 
and in Christ meets together infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. So friends, we have to know the character of God. We have to study who God is. And yes, he's all powerful, but oh, he is all gracious and compassionate and merciful. And one action item, one action step to help us in our times of despair to be acquainted not only with the glory and the transcendence of God, but the mercy and the compassion of God is to read through the Gospels. Read through them and focus on the character of Jesus, which is the character of God. And see Jesus in the Gospels as this diverse combination of both the sovereign king and the gentle shepherd. Our friends, know the character of God. This takes study. We can do this, friends. We can study things that are important to us. I have to admit that this past week, I spent more time than I would like to admit studying the draft prospects of the Los Angeles Chargers, who have the sixth pick in the NFL draft. I hope they choose Tua Tungavailoa to be their quarterback. I would be thrilled with that. And I listened to a few podcasts this week where I studied the possibilities of what my favorite team, who they would draft. Friends, we know how to study. We know how to get informed. The point I'm making in a silly way is that we know how to inform our hearts when we want information. Don't let despair crowd out your intentionality. Know the character of God. Recall the goodness of God. And fight, fight to take these truths into your heart in this time of despair, which leads us to the third, the third way that the psalmist instructs us to deal with despair. And oh, this is, this is so good. This is, this is, I think, the heart of this psalm. The third way that we deal with despair is to rest in the miraculous grace of God. Rest in the miraculous grace of God. Look again at verses 16 through 19, and, and in verses 16 through 19, the psalmist is in poetic language recounting and describing the salvation of Israel from Egyptian captivity, really the parting of the Red Sea. So let me read verses 16 through 19 again. He says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. He's speaking about the Red Sea. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Listen to verse 19. He says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. What is the psalmist saying there? He's saying that God, when he saves his people and he redeems them, that his way is a miraculous way. It's through the sea. This is how he saved Israel. Their backs, picture the scene here that he paints in verses 16 through 19. He has led Israel to flee captivity in Egypt, to run from Egypt. And now they find themselves at this obstacle, this ocean, the Red Sea. And so the Red Sea is at their front and the Egyptian army is at their back. And what does God do? 
He doesn't give them some newly devised military strategy. He doesn't tell them to hide. He doesn't tell them, try this and see if it works. No, he saves them by a miraculous act of grace. He parts the sea. That's what the psalmist is saying here. That his way, God's way, is always miraculous. It's through the sea. And just as God saved Israel through the sea, If you're a believer in Jesus, he saved you miraculously through the cross. Springer read this for us earlier. Colossians chapter 1, let me read just verses 19 and 20. It says, For in him, meaning Jesus the Son, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of God of his cross. Friends, you have to know, we have to know, we have to remember the gospel that the good news of the Bible is not merely a message of pragmatism or living life in a more functional way. Although if we live in the precepts of the Lord, clearly that will to some level, to one degree or another, be true. But the message of the gospel is not more functionality, but it's a rescue story. God's way is through the sea. And God rescues his people from despair, ultimately and finally from his wrath, from the judgment that is coming on us. Oh, friends, when we get our eyes off of the temporary situation that we're facing and we realize that our biggest problem is not isolation, it's not quarantine, it's not the potential loss of financial resources, it's not even the potential loss of health or even physical life, that our greatest problem is the fact that we have offended a holy God and that we will stand before him one day and the only way that we can pass through is through the sea, through the cross, through the miraculous grace of God who parts his wrath and makes a way for us through his son's perfect life, through his son's substitutionary death on the cross, and through his son's victorious resurrection, and all those that trust in him, even though they may despair for the moment, will one day dance in joy with him because his way is through the sea. His way is miraculously through the cross. And when we see that, even though despair may endure through the night, joy comes in the morning. His way, friends, is in and through the sea. His way is through the cross. My friends, remember how he said earlier that despair lies. I think there might be somebody that's listening to this, maybe even a believer that's starting to wrestle and doubt their own salvation. And the things that have gone through your mind, even maybe the old habits that you've given yourself into during this time of isolation have so discouraged you and caused you despair that you're starting to wonder whether or not this can be true for you. Or maybe you're listening to this and you, you think, oh, well, that, that sure sounds wonderful, but <laughs> you don't know You don't know who I am and what I've done. And this may apply for somebody else, but I don't know if it really could apply for me. You know, his way, he may do miracles for other people in this gracious sort of way. He may may open up their dead hearts, but I'm, I'm too far gone. Listen to the instruction of Edwards again in this beautiful sermon, The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Christ Jesus. 
Listen to this quote. It's a little longer, but it's beautiful. And I pray that it puts, it puts hope in your heart and steel in your spine. In this sermon, he says, If you are a poor, distressed sinner whose heart is ready to sink for fear that God will never have mercy on you, you need not be afraid to go to Christ. In other words, don't despair. For fear that he is either unable or unwilling to help you. Here is a strong foundation and an inexhaustible treasure to answer the necessities of your poor soul. And here is infinite grace and gentleness to invite and embolden a poor, unworthy, fearful soul to come to it. If Christ accepts you, you need not fear, but that you will be safe, for he is a strong lion for your defense. And if you come, you need not fear that you shall be accepted, for he is like a lamb to all that come to him and receives them with infinite grace and tenderness. It is true that he has awful majesty, meaning majesty that's full of awe. It is true that he has awful majesty. He is the great God and infinitely high above you. But there is this to encourage and embolden the poor sinner, that Christ is a man as well as God. He is a creature as well as the creator. And he is the most humble and lowly in heart of any creature in heaven or earth. This may well make the poor, unworthy creature bold in coming to him. You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to him and cast yourself upon him. You will certainly be graciously and meekly received by him. Listen to this. Though he is a lion, he will only be a lion to your enemies, but he will be a lamb to you. Whatever your circumstances are, you need not be afraid to come to such a Savior as this. Oh, dear friends, his way is through the sea, and he saves and protects and promises to bring all of his children all the way home, no matter what this world may throw at us. And then finally, the fourth and final instruction, it's in the last verse, we are to trust God's guidance for an unknown future. Look again at verse 20 of our text. He concludes after this, this crescendo, really, of the salvation of Israel in Egypt and how his way is through the sea. Then look at how he describes the other side of the sea, the other side of salvation. He says in verse 20, you lead your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God, through his grace, gives us his word. He gives us pastors and elders and leaders and under-shepherds and and big brothers and sisters in Christ. And he graciously leads us. Sometimes we can't see it. Remember his footprints, as it said in verse 19, are often unseen. But God leads his people. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Mark chapter 4, where Jesus leads his disciples into the storm. Know that whatever future we are going into, whatever future you're going into, that may be causing you despair because you don't know it now, know that it's God who's leading you by the hand. He's leading you in and through the storm, and he's doing it for his good purposes. And he will lead his people out, and he will bring them all the way home. Friends, this is 
how we are to deal with despair, to recall the goodness of God in our lives, to know and study the character of God, to trust in the miraculous grace of the gospel. His way is through the cross. And to know that he will lead his people safely home. Let's pray. Father, I am sure that my brothers and sisters and friends that may be listening have dealt with, are dealing with, or most certainly will deal with despair. Lord, when we do, if we are right now, let this psalm be a kind of gospel lens through which we can diagnose our despair and then more importantly deal with it for our good and your glory. Encourage my brothers and sisters and for any friends that may be listening that don't know the Lord, that don't know you, Lord, burn in their hearts. Give them ears to hear this gospel grace that being reconciled to you is not by human effort But it's through the sea, it's through the cross, it's through the miraculous gift of your son who died on the cross to bear your wrath and rose again in victory so that all those that will trust in him, trust in him and not themselves, can be reconciled to you. Lord, give them a heart to believe and trust in Jesus and put steel in the spines of your people and give us Psalm 77 gospel lenses to deal with our despair. I pray all these things for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, if you feel like you have trusted in Christ or you're considering what it means to trust in Christ and you need somebody to talk to or follow up with you, please email us. You can send us a message through Facebook or email us on our website, and one of the pastors and elders will be sure to get in contact with you. Friends and family from Crosspoint, be encouraged. Know that we're here praying for you. We love you. We miss you. And until we see each other again next Sunday, Lord willing, God bless.